I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 31. Job chapter 31. We're going to be looking at several passages at the end of the book of Job. So we want you to have a Bible, and these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. And it is marked at Job 31 for you. Job 31. There are situations for all of us in which we'd like more information than we have. It starts when we're very young and it manifests itself in lots and lots of questions. Little children ask, where are we going? And what are we doing next? Or why do I have to eat that? And when will I be able to fill in the blank? We want to know because to the extent that we don't, we're not in control. We learn as children that our days are being ordered by others. And that can be very uncomfortable, so we ask lots of questions. It's not just in families that the decisions of others affect us for good or ill, but it's in every realm, really, in government, in school, at work, and others. And over time, you not only learn that you're not in control of so many decisions that influence your life, but also that those who are making the decisions are not always competent. Political leaders make decisions that place us further in debt or involve us in ill-advised conflicts. Educators may rewrite curriculum without fully appreciating its effects on the teachers and students. Managers restructure a department or an entire company, and it may result in lower profit and eventually layoffs. We want more information and more input on decisions for a very good reason. Those who make those decisions often get it wrong, and sometimes we pay the price. But there are times when not only are you not informed why you're being told to do a particular thing, but it would be actually dangerous for you to be told. For example, in the military or in law enforcement, there's going to be times when you just have to go on command with no time to discuss why. In those environments, responding to the commands of others is literally a matter of life and death. So you have to trust your commanders. Since we're in so many situations that require trust, trust in other people, and yet at the same time there are so many times that those in charge are untrustworthy, then what is the solution? How can I trust when the people making the decisions may and often do make the wrong ones? Well, how about this? More than trusting the people who are over you, We need to learn to trust the one who is over them. Now, I didn't say don't trust the people who are over you. Because the truth is that over time, good and competent people prove themselves to be trustworthy. But even they can and do make mistakes and they can and do sin. So even in the best of circumstances, it's necessary to learn to look beyond the situation. And to look to the one who is in control of the situation. Since you'll never be in control, 
you need to trust someone who is. And friends, the earlier that we learn that, the better off we will be. And that's why the Bible addresses children, children, directly in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, understand that I, God, the Lord, have placed people over you, ultimately for your good, but of course they don't always do good, but I do. The more you trust those in control, the less you feel that you need to be. And the more you trust the one who controls them, the better you're able to cope with their failures. And so because we are never fully in control, we've all got to be taught to trust. To trust when we're under the authority of other people or when we're in the throes of baffling circumstances. In all of that, we have to learn to trust the God who controls the people and the situations in our lives because we don't and we never will. And because we don't and because we never will, God teaches us to trust, and he does that without answering all of our questions. Now think about it. If God answered every question we have, then there would be no need for trust. And God has so designed our lives that we are to be regularly dependent on him. Now today we're going to conclude our survey of the book of Job. And you know that the book of Job is the story of a man who is struggling with whether or not he can trust God in his circumstances. And the circumstances of Job's life go from ordered and wonderful to chaotic and horrific in just a matter of days. When his possessions and his family and his health are all taken from him. And Job tries to make sense of what's happened. And he's helped. Not really, by three friends who each say the same thing. In effect, Job, you're getting what you deserve because that's the way it works. God rewards you if you do good. He punishes you if you do evil. You are clearly being punished, at least according to their understanding. And so they say you must have some unconfessed sin in your life. Those friends see God as slavishly controlled by a general truth of Scripture that you reap what you sow. Sometimes called, and you've heard me say throughout this series, the retribution principle. While it generally holds, and the Bible teaches, that what we do affects what we get, it's not always true. That if things are bad, it's because we've done bad. And hear this, it's certainly not true that just because we're experiencing blessing, it's due to our good. Because that denies both the doctrines of sin and grace that are taught throughout the Bible. And Job, throughout all of this, and as he's interacting with his friends, Job knows some things his so-called friends do not. Job knows that he has no secret sin that would have brought on this calamity. And he knows that there is more to his relationship with God than a simple formula. If you do bad, you get bad. If you do good, you get good. But although we read in the first two chapters of the book why it is that all of this has happened to Job, 
And we see there that it has nothing to do with Job's lack of righteous behavior. In fact, God calls him there blameless. Although we can read that at the beginning of the book, Job is never told this. He, Job, does not know what we know. And so Job is profoundly confused. And the confusion morphs into frustration and then into anger and incessant questioning of God. On several occasions, Job asked for an audience with God in order to have his questions answered. In Job's final speech that we're going to see in a bit, a, a bit of in chapter 31 in a moment, Job lays out a long list of potential sins for which it would make sense that he's being punished if indeed he had done them, but he hasn't. He lists the sins that he could have committed, and Job admits that an appropriate punishment should follow had he done those things. As an example, verse 21 of Job chapter 31. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall off from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at that joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Verse 24, if I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance, or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my hand offered them a kiss of homage. What he's saying there is, if I had been lured away into the idolatry of money or I began worshiping the sun and the moon. Then, verse 28, there also would be sins. These also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. And he does that kind of thing throughout chapter 31, his final chapter, Job's final speech. Here's a list of things that I could have done, and had I done them, then there would be appropriate punishments for that. But I haven't done any of these things, he says. So one commentator says in his final oath of innocence, Job employs the ancient legal strategy of what's called negative confession, an approach that's also found in Egyptian and Hittite literature. Job lists the various accusations that have been raised against him, and then he denies them all. Several times, Job uses the forms, if I have done this crime, then let God punish me with this horrible consequence. Other times, Job just states the condition, but he leaves the consequence undefined. And by this means, Job's at, Job, as the defendant, calls on God as a judge, either to condemn him to the full extent of the law or else to clear him of the erroneous charge. If Job is guilty, then he's invited God to strike him with horrific penalties. If God does not exact the punishment, then God's failure to do so will tacitly acquit Job of the charges against him. And by this legal procedure, even the silence of God the judge can exonerate Job. So do you see what Job said up here? <laughs> I've been begging you to let me talk to you. You've said nothing. So now I'm going to list all the stuff I could have done. And then I'm going to deny before you, God, that I've done any of them. 
And then I'm going to call on you to act, to punish me if I have. And if you fail to act, if God continues to be silent, then that will show indeed to my friends and prove once and for all that I have not done these things. This is Job's final word then in this whole long episode. And you get down to verse 35. And he says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And who is my accuser? God. So God, I am calling on you now to judge me and put the sentence in writing. And the chapter concludes in verse 40. And simply says, the words of Job are ended. In effect, Job is saying, I rest my case. He has made his case and he's made this case before God. And now he stops. He rests. But although Job has taken the posture of a defendant in a court case, and Job has marshaled evidence in his defense, It's really God who is on trial in this whole episode. First, from Satan, who challenged God, you'll remember at the very beginning of the book. If you stop giving blessings to Job, then he'll have no need for you. In fact, he will curse you to your face. And now, not only is Job on trial before Satan, but now in the eyes of Job, Job is asking, what kind of God are you? I don't believe you are unjust. And I don't believe you are mechanical in your dealings with your people, as my friends claim. But just who are you, God, as evidenced in what you are doing? And that's why at the top of your outline that we have inserted in your program, if you don't have that, take a look. And I've titled this, God Rests His Defense. Because at the end of the book of Job, we're going to see that God does speak. But it's God defending then himself against these implied accusations. In this final message then in Job, next week we'll begin a series in the book of Philippians. But in this final message, we're going to see indeed what God is doing. Not only what God is doing in the story of Job, but in our own lives as well. Let's ask God to help us then as we do. Our Father, there are so many things we want to know. Lord, we admit we want to be in control. To be in control, we've got to know. But there is only one who is in control. There is only one who is fully competent and omniscient and omnipotent and sovereign to be in control. And our God, that is you. And so, Lord, we ask you to teach us. Teach us as people who are restless. Teach us as people who are often faithless. To trust you as you taught your servant Job. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's say in your outline, first of all, that God teaches us what we need to know. God teaches us what we need to know. Now, notice I've said he teaches what we need, not necessarily what we want. Why is that? 
Why doesn't he give us what we want to know? Aren't there all kinds of things, even from the Bible, that you wish were in there that you've looked for and they're not? Would you like to know more about what heaven is going to be like? And what precisely you're going to be doing it? Now, the Bible talks a good bit about heaven. But it may well not tell you, as it doesn't tell me, as much as I might like to know about heaven. There are all kinds of questions that God has told us what we need to know, but not necessarily what we want to know. Why is that? It's because one of the most important lessons that every person must learn is since we will never know all, we must learn to trust the one who does. At the very end of this book of Job, the very last chapter in chapter 42, all of Job's losses that he experienced at the beginning, all of those are restored, in fact, twice as much as before. Now, this restoration at the end of the book shows Job and shows his friends definitively that what happened was not about retribution. It was not about something that Job had done. That was the suspicion of the friends, and God makes clear by restoring all of this, in fact, twofold, that it was not about that. And Job needed to know that. And the friends needed to understand that they were wrong in their view of God. And so God restores this. He he teaches them what they need to know. But although Job is shown that, and so the friends are proven wrong, God never tells Job what it was about. By restoring all this, he tells them what it was not about. It was not about you doing something wrong, Job. And so you were right and the friends were wrong. He teaches them that, but you get to the very end and Job never is told what we know. We have the first two chapters of Job and he, of course, did not. And God never reveals to him why it was he did all of this. God teaches us what we need to know, not necessarily what we We want to know. And he teaches us what we need to know in a couple of ways. I say in your outline, he teaches us through his deeds. That is, he teaches us what we need to know by what he does. By what he allows to happen in our lives. In everything that our sovereign God brings into our lives, he is doing it for the purpose of teaching us. At minimum, he's doing it for the purpose of teaching us to trust him in what we don't know and sometimes more. We have an example of this action on the part of God in order to teach one of his servants something in the life of the great apostle Paul. Many of you are familiar with Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says that God gave me a physical malady. But Job says, or excuse me, Paul says the reason for which that happened. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Not only was I given this physical malady, but here's why. It was in order for me to be prevented from becoming conceited with all of the otherwise blessings that God had given me. And he recounts in that chapter some of those blessings that I was caught up into the third heaven, and I saw things that others are not privy to to see. In order, though, for me to be kept from being conceited, God gave me this physical thorn. I recall being a senior at a Christian high school, and one of our teachers, Jim Hubbard, who is now Dr. Hubbard, the principal of the school, 
I recall in class him telling a story of God's work in his then very young life. He had recently been in college on a basketball scholarship, but he suffered an injury. As I recall, I believe it was to his eye that kept him from being able to play. It was a very deep trial for him as a young man. And I remember him recounting to us in class what God had taught him in that. And I will never forget watching this young teacher of ours with a quivering lip, moved with emotion, telling these young people, God was saying to me, who is in control? God was reminding me as a young person with my life mapped out and the things I wanted to do that God is the one who's in control. God teaches us what we need to know. He teaches us through what he does. He teaches us through what he allows, through his deeds. But I say in your outline as well, he teaches us through his words. And in his word, through his words, the same book of Second Corinthians says in chapter one, God, who comforts us in all our troubles, he does so so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see what God is teaching there? God is teaching us directly. He is saying that. There are times where you go through things and I will comfort you and see you through that so that you can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort you have received from me. I use this passage in counseling as I tell people, I don't know all that God has for you in the particular circumstance you're in. But I do know this. I do know that he intends to use you later because he says so in this very passage. So whatever God is allowing in your life, he says directly, he teaches you in his word, by his words, that he intends to use you on the backside of that thing. Now, let that be an incentive for you, dear friends. As you go through whatever our sovereign God has allowed in your lives, as you go through that, to say, I want to go through this in a godly manner. Learning the lessons that God has for me so that I will be a useful vessel for him to help others who go through similar circumstances. Nick Vajusic entered this world without arms or legs. Both his mom and his dad, who was an Australian pastor, they both felt devastated by their firstborn son's condition. If God's a God of love, they said, then why would he let something like this happen, and especially to committed Christians? But they chose to trust God in spite of their questions. And their son Nick struggled at school while other other students bullied and rejected him. At that stage in my childhood, he said, I could understand God's love to a point, but I still got hung up on the fact that if God really loved me, why did he make me like this? I wondered if I'd done something wrong, and I began to feel certain that that must be true. And thoughts of suicide plagued Nick until one day the 15-year-old read the story of Jesus in John 9 about the man born blind. 
And you may remember that Jesus was brought to this man by Jesus' disciples, his followers, and they asked the question, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, their assumption was you get bad because you do bad or somebody did bad, so who was it? And Jesus says this was done not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but, quote, that the works of God should be revealed in him. And Nick surrendered his life to Christ. Now at age 26, he's earned a bachelor's degree and he encourages others as a motivational speaker. He says, due to the emotional struggles I had experienced with bullying and self-esteem and loneliness, God began to instill a passion of sharing my story and experiences to help others cope with whatever challenge they might have in their lives. Turning my struggles into something that would glorify God and bless others, I realized my purpose. The Lord was going to use me to encourage and inspire others. God's purpose became clearer to me, and now I'm fully convinced, and I understand that His glory is revealed as He uses me just the way I am. And even more wonderful, He can use me in ways others cannot be used. That is true for every one of us. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, God designs to use what we go through as an aid to others. God teaches us what we need to know. He does that by his works. He also does that by his words, what he has told us. And then I say in your outline, God not only teaches us what we need to know, but God moves us where we need to go. Teaches us what we need to know, and he moves us where we need to go. All right, so you have Job. And you have Job's speeches throughout the book. And those speeches end in chapter 31. From chapter 32 to 37, a fifth person comes on the scene, a young man named Elihu. And Elihu, from chapter 32 to 37, says essentially the same thing that the other three friends did. In somewhat softer terms, he allows that instead of punishment... There are times when possibly God is doing these difficult things in our lives for formative reasons, but he doesn't add uh, very much to what the friends have said. And in fact, at the very end in chapter 42, when God addresses is addressing Job and he addresses directly Eliphaz and the other two friends, he doesn't mention Elihu at all. He just skips over him and ignores them altogether. And it's finally in chapter 38. That God speaks. In chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Now why out of the storm? Sometimes in the first part of your Bible. uh, A storm accompanies judgment. But it's also used at times to demonstrate God's tangible presence, tangible evidence of God being there. And so in this case, he's not judging Job. Job hasn't done anything. We know why this has all all happened. But speaking out of the storm is a tangible evidence of God's, God's presence. And there was a storm at the beginning of the book of Job, you may remember, that brought calamity on Job's family. And now at the end of the book of Job, a storm is going to bring calm. And God speaks. And in verse 2, 
says, who is this that darkens my counsel? Who is this? The first thing God says is, who is this? That is, who are you? And we're going to see, who are you compared to me? God wants Job to see who he is in relationship to the true and living God. And so he begins with, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Verse 3. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Do you remember what Job said in chapter 31? I've laid out my case. I rest my case. I have signed it. I present it before God. And now God answer me. And God says, no. You will answer me. And in chapters 38 to 41, God asks 70, 70 rhetorical questions. Just questions that the answer is implied. He gives 70 rhetorical questions beginning in verse 4 of chapter 38. We're not going to read all these questions. But just to give you a flavor, verse 4. God asked Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And of course, the answer to this is only you, God. Only you, God, did all of this. God is beginning to show Job, Job, there are dimensions of this world that you know nothing about. Scholar Daniel Estes says, as the master teacher, God poses more than 70 unanswerable questions to Job. These questions are meant not to humiliate or intimidate Job, but rather to disclose to him the many inexplicable wonders of God's workings in the world. God makes use of a skillful teaching technique by asking questions to help Job discover what he does not know. As Job comes to realize how much he does not comprehend about God's world, he is willing to accept a humble position before God who does know all things. God does not answer the questions Job has been asking, but instead he points Job in an altogether different direction. He wants Job to learn that the divine wisdom is superior to even the best human understanding. God knows what he is doing in his world and in Job's life. God does not tell me, does not tell you, did not tell Job all that we might want to know. But what he does tell us has a purpose. What he selectively tells us has a purpose. And what he does not, hear this now, what he does not tell us has a purpose. (laughs) What he does say instructs us, to be sure... But what he withholds, what he does not say, has a purpose as well. And that purpose is to instill in us trust in him. And that's why I say God moves us where we need to go. And in your outline, that he moves us to humility. God moves us to humility. 
before him. Now, there is humility in relation to to God between us, the creature, and he, the creator. And then there's, of course, humility on a horizontal plane between uh, each other. Here, of course, we're talking about humility in the presence of God and before God and what God is doing in, in our lives. But hear this, if I really understand that I'm not the most important person in the universe. (laughs) Now, as I say that, you're all going, well, yeah, I know that. Don't be so fast. I mean, you know that intellectually. But when we whine and when we complain and when we insist that we must know, we are acting as though. We're the most important. But if I really understand that I'm not the most important person in the universe, it will have an effect on how I view myself in relation to other people, will it not? (laughs) If I understand that ultimately this is about God, that God is the most important person in the universe, it will have an effect then on how I relate to others. Humility then toward God is foundational. We're going to see in a moment that God finally speaks to Job. And as Job listens to what God says to him, the effect is that Job is humbled before God. If you'll flip over to chapter 40. God speaks to Job out of the storm. Asks these 70 rhetorical questions to set Job in proper relationship to God. To show Job there are all of these things, Job, that you don't understand and cannot comprehend And Job briefly answers in chapter 40 and verse 3. Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Ah, Job is starting to get it. I know, Job, and you don't. And so he answers and says, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I have no answer for you. We've seen for chapters and chapters that Job has been asking these questions. He's been pressing his case. The Bible teaches us through the Psalms, through the activity of Job, that it's okay to have questions, but hear this, it is not okay to accuse. It is okay to have questions. God, I don't understand. What are you doing? But it is never okay to accuse. To put it another way, we can be inquisitive, but never accusative toward God. And Job comes very close in his frustration and in his anger. And God speaks some more in chapter 40 and throughout chapter 41 with these questions to Job. And when you get to chapter 42, we look at chapter 42. And verse 1. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
Now notice verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Even back in chapter 40, when he says, I'm not going to say anymore. He still has not been brought to the place of repentance. But now at the end of the book, Job has been brought to that place. Where he recognizes that he had begun to reverse the roles of creator and creature. And God sets him back in his place. Job, you don't know a fraction of what I know about this world and all that goes on in it and how I control it. God then engenders in his people, taking us where we need to go. He moves us to humility before him. This is why throughout the Bible you have these prohibitions against boasting. Let him who boasts, boast in who? Boast in the Lord. That's why James says this. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God takes us where we need to go. He moves us to humility. And we're brought to humility when we realize a couple of things, as I say in your outline. First, that we control nothing. You'll be brought to humility. I'll be brought to humility when I recognize that I truly and ultimately control nothing. Man does not control anything. So we can assume it's God who does. Now follow me. We don't. We can assume it's God who does since it's evident that someone does. From the orderly design and the operation of God's world. Just looking at that orderly design and operation, somebody's controlling it. And if it ain't us, then it's God. We don't control anything. We don't control, friends, our years. We can plan our years, but we can't control them. At our men's retreat this weekend, we received some good teaching on financial planning. Very good material on actuarial numbers of life expectancy. And that helps with with planning. On average, people on average live so long and so forth. But it is the case, is it not, that mishaps beyond our control can alter everything and do so instantly. Tom Wolfe's best-selling novel, Bonfire of the Vanities, is about young men on Wall Street in the 80s who had it all. They even considered themselves the masters of the universe. That's a phrase used in the book. And they were called that because they seem to be in control of their lives and what they do affects so many others. But the main character, one of the young masters, gets into a car accident that completely changes the trajectory of his life. That's why the Bible warns us. Proverbs, do not boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring. James, again, you do not even know what will happen Tomorrow. And so, friends, since we ultimately, ultimately control nothing, then we have no basis for boasting regarding what we have, right? God moves us to this humility by reminding us that we don't ultimately control anything. And that's why, rhetorically, in your New Testament, we have the question asked, what do you have that you did not receive? And then it goes on to say, and if you did receive it, and you did, you received it from someone else. Even when you get a paycheck from your employer, it is someone else, that someone else, ultimately God, 
who made the stuff that you're able to use and manipulate and manufacture or whatever it is your work involves. And so we ultimately all receive everything from the hand of God. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? We are brought to humility when we realize we control nothing and that, I say in your outline, God conversely controls everything. We can plan our years, but we can't control them. But God knows and planned the very day I would be born, and God knows and planned the day I will die. And you too. And the psalmist said this in Psalm 139, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And that's why if I'm going to learn, if you're going to learn the lesson of the book of Job, it's going to have to be that I trust God in what I don't know, and what I don't know is vast. <laughs> I can't even control my years. I don't know that I'll be here tomorrow. James, again, you ought to say this. If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Because it will only happen if it's the Lord's will. God moves us where we need to go. He moves us to humility. And then I say lastly, he moves us to himself. He moves us to humility and he moves us to himself. In everything that God is bringing into your life, that's what he's doing. If he needs to put me in my place like he did with Job, then he'll do that. He'll bring me to humility. He will set me in proper relation as the creature to the creator. And ultimately, that is for the purpose of bringing us to himself. And I say that not just bringing us to himself initially in salvation. Certainly it involves that. But then after we are in the family of God as his children. Continuing to work in our lives through all of our circumstances. To bring us back and close to himself. God refines in us our suffering. And then he ex graciously explains why he allows these things to happen. Doesn't give the details but in general this is why it happens. Here's Isaiah 48. God says, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Okay, but why? I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Why? And God then goes on to tell us why in general terms. Now get this. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. For my sake, I do this, and I do all things. God moves us to humility, moves us to himself, reminding us that he, not we, are the center of the universe. And so for emphasis, God says, I do this for my own sake. For my own sake, he repeats it. Friends, if you don't understand that the universe is about God and his glory and that whatever exalts God's glory also works for your ultimate good, then you will misunderstand this passage in Isaiah 48 and countless others in the Bible. Randy Alcorn in his book, If God is Good, and I believe we have copies of that in our resource center, said some consider God egotistical or cruel to test us for his sake, but the testing he does for his sake accrues to our eternal benefit. How often have you heard people say, 
I grew closest to God when my life was free from pain and suffering. That's not what you hear, is it? I grew closest to God when I went through that thing, whatever it was. And who's doing all this? Who's allowing all this? The God who's in control, the God who knows you completely, knows precisely what we need to be taught and when and how. He said to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. So here's what God does. As Michelangelo used his chisel to form David from a marble block. So God may use suffering to form us into the image of Christ. To produce his masterpiece, Sculpture of David, Michelangelo chose, as many of you know, a stone that all the other artists had rejected. Seeing that the huge marble block had hidden potential, he chipped away everything that wasn't David. (laughs) The master worked daily to transform it into something surpassingly beautiful. Now, if that marble had feelings, it wouldn't like the chiseling process. It might even resent the sculptor. While Michelangelo may not have called upon the stone to cooperate with him, God has called us to yield ourselves by submitting to his chisel. Because we fail to see the person God intends to form through our adversity, we too may resent the chiseling. The master artist chose us, the flawed and the unusable, to be crafted into the image of Christ to fulfill our destiny in displaying Jesus to the watching universe. We ask God to remove the chisel because it hurts. But it's a means of transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. God, I don't understand. But I know that you do. And I will trust that. And here's your take-home truth. God can be trusted with what we do not know. And there is so much that we do not know, and God knows it all. And the question for you is the question for Job. Do you trust this God who is in control? Now, we're going to pray and be done. But what I have said here only resonates for those who have a relationship with God the Father. The only way you can buy into what the Bible teaches, what I've been saying today, the only way you can buy into that is if you have a relationship with this God and God's Holy Spirit has moved on your heart so that you are inclined toward him, so that you trust him even when you can't see what he's doing. Only God's people who have his spirit can do that. And we struggle with it. Hear this, friend. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't know this God. And there's no way, there is no way that you will be able to trust this God in the midst of what he brings your way. It will engender anger. It will engender accusation. It all begins with a relationship with this God through Jesus. Now, how does that start? You recognize, you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize that God has come in Jesus Christ, God the Son, and He did what you could not do for yourself. He lived the life that we were to live. He died the death that we deserve. And then repent. Confess to God, God, I've been going my own way. 
I've been looking at life through my own very narrow, very narrow lens. I've not placed you first. You made me. You put me here for you. You do these things for your sake. I repent of going my way. I'm going to go your way. When you receive Jesus Christ into your life, you pray when we bow something in your own words from your heart, God, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to rescue me, to save me. I give you my life. I'm going to follow you. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for stilling our hearts, opening our minds, teaching us from your word and through the life of your servant Job. Lord, I need to be reminded regularly of how small I am, but a creature. Your word says we are but dust. And you are the creator. Oh God, who am I to question you? You know everything. There is nothing that has ever occurred to you. You have never had to learn anything. When we pray to you, we're not informing you. We're coming to you in dependence with empty hands. On the assumption that you know everything and can do everything that you will. That's why we pray to you. And so, Lord, forgive me of my arrogance. Forgive us your people of our arrogance when we suppose to tell you how it should be in our lives. Lord, I pray in your mercy that right now in this sacred moment that you are drawing some out of the world into yourself. God, the Holy Spirit, we're asking, humbly asking you to move on the hearts of some in this room who came here with their own ideas about God if they think about God at all. And they, like we all tend to do, have sought to mold you into their image rather than understanding that we were made to reflect yours. Bring them to the Lord Jesus, into whose image we are being transformed. Lord, help us to see that today and tomorrow, next week, and throughout our lives, everything that you allow is accomplishing your purpose of reflecting you back to you for your sake. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.